So today we have on a guest. I was just kind of telling her, I've been kind of a fanboy since I heard her on the FKT podcast when she was talking about the winner of her high route. She's got the fastest known times, female, unsupported female times on Gannett Peak, the Whirl, and the Wind River High Route, and then several other trails as well. And like I said, before we were talking, she kind of really is like the definition of a hybrid mountain athlete to me. So today we have on Kelly Halpin. How's it going? Hey, Chad, how you doing today? I am doing good. I just got actually back from Vail for from four days like filming some content for Mountain House. That was a good time. Oh, that's great. uh, Yeah, so I'm happy to be back. But yeah, you know, like we were talking about before, I was like, I don't even know what topic to start off with on this podcast because Kelly does so many cool, rad things. And like I said, the first time I ever heard of her was on the FKT podcast. They were interviewing her about her Wind River High Route uh, FKT. And one of the things that struck me was the story about spending a night out with just an emergency blanket. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? What like an emergency blanket is? And when you were doing the Wind River High Route for the FKT, you actually just brought that as like your camp if you were going to be camping, I think, right? Or can you you tell me more about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, anytime I do a big effort in the mountains where I'm going to be going usually through multiple nights, I bring an emergency blanket as well, an emergency blanket so that if you get injured, you can wrap yourself in it and stay warm. Or if you somehow end up in a torrential downpour, it can kind of double as a shelter. Or if I have a partner and a partner gets injured, you can wrap yourself in that and stay warm. I think what you were referring to was the night I got, my friend and I got stuck on a ledge. The first time we were putting together this route called the Teton Center Punch, which is a route we created that follows the hydrological divide of the Tetons from South Yellowstone all the way to Teton Pass. It's 70 miles. About 30 to 40% of it is technical ridgelines. And the first time we did it, we were on-siding the entire northern part of the route because it's so remote. It wasn't even worth going and scouting. It's just easier to just do the whole thing. And while we were going through the absolute most technical section around two in the morning, we got stuck in a rainstorm and this technical section involves fifth class climbing, which we were doing in the dark on lichen covered rocks, which weren't just slippery, but they were loose. And after spending, God, I can't remember at this point, but we wasted a lot of time trying to find the correct way through. And when we decided it was too unsafe to continue on, we wrapped ourselves in a blanket that we shared so that we could stay warm on this ledge, which is above 10,000 feet. Right. Until we had enough light to continue on safely. So, I mean, we kind of got benighted, although it was more like two and a half hours where we just sort of like shivered. Anyway, that's why you carry an emergency blanket with you. And when I went to go do the Wind River High Route, which took about 59 hours unsupported because I'm trying to go light and fast, my only backup emergency shelter was an emergency blanket so that's what i carried with me so how so i carry one too i've never actually used it how warm are they they're they're not (laughs) they're not really warm i mean it helps if you have another person and you can both reflect like on the center punch but when i was alone on the high route i tried to take a 30 minute dirt nap once i was about 24 hours in and i was so cold i actually didn't sleep at all i was just shaking 
even though I was curled up in a little ball. And, you know, it does reflect heat, but it's it's not a lot of heat and not enough for someone like me who has a hard time regulating body temperature to really stay warm. So, yeah, I, I wasted a lot of time trying to take a dirt nap and I never actually ended up taking a dirt nap. So, yeah, that was, let's see, 59 hours on the route plus an additional eight hours afterwards to hang out with my friends who picked me up. So I was awake for about 70 hours without sleeping. Ooh, ouch. Were you yeah. That that was on the that was on the Wind River High Route. On the Wind River High Route. And I went into that with only three hours of sleep the night before because Kelly. it was so windy. My tent was just like shaking before I started the route, which I started at three in the morning. So Kelly. it was that was pretty extreme sleep deprivation. That is wow, that's crazy. Okay. So were you this is probably the common question you always get, but were you actually like see were you what is it called? Visualizing? Hyper no. Why Hallucinating? Yeah, I was like hyperventilating. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, were you doing that at all? Audible hallucinations. So I don't know if there's a proper term for that, but you know, I was I was hearing things, but visually I was yeah, I was fine visually, but yeah. I was I could hear all kinds of crazy, crazy things, voices, songs, people singing to me. It was wild. I hope it was good music. It was actually. It was lovely music. <laughs> now, first of all, the Wind River High Route, I so we attempted this last year, me and a buddy. Actually, me and three buddies did. Oh, nice. Or uh, two other buddies did. And he, the, one of the, the skirt variation? It, it was the same the, one I did? Yeah. Okay. Should not, should not have started with that one as my first ever high route. Should not have done that. <laughs> that was so freaking hard. So, and one of our buddies drove from Iowa to meet us there because he used to live in Seattle, moved to Ohio. He drove all the way there. He got COVID the day before. So we had to drive all the way back. So we lost him and it was just me and another guy. And okay, that descent from Wind River Peak, we were like, what is this? Yeah, it's pretty loose. It's extremely I, loose. And there's big cliffs on it too. So big cliffs. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I had like a boulder like I saw this like I was you know you rock hopping or whatever and I was rock hopping down there and like a boulder came down on my leg and I yeah. just was able to bench press it off before it came and just I'm like dude we are out here anyway long story short we bailed like halfway through like we didn't we didn't have enough we thought we were gonna blaze through this thing we did not bring <laughs> enough food we did not so anyway, but that's my Wind River High Route story. So I already know, like, that's why I have, like, so much respect for your FKT of that, because I know how difficult it is. So how did you, did you, like, piece by piece that, like, when you were training to do the FKT, like, do a section and a section and a section and kind of, like, piece things together? And, or, like, how do you even go about, you know, setting a record like that, like, leading up to it? You got must have to scout and things, stuff like that. Yeah, I think scouting helps a whole lot. There was one section of it in the middle I had not done before. A couple of years ago, I did an FKT of the other high route, which is the Wilson-Dixon variation, which is 80 miles. Um, and it misses a lot of the glaciers and high peaks, but it's a, it's a different version of a high route in the winds. And it's also very beautiful. It's a little more moderate. If anyone's looking for a good one to backpack, that's not quite as technical as the Skirka variation of the high route. But the two high routes do share a couple of miles of trail or trail. I mean, most of it's not on trail, but a couple of miles. So I went and scouted, let's see, 
I scouted the end because that's easy to get in and out of. It's like you can go in at Big Sandy and do basically like a 50K out into Lander, like up and over Windover Peak and out. So I did that with a friend. We ran it. And then I fast packed with a friend of mine. I was supposed to fast pack the entire, well, I was doing it from from Downs Peak all the way towards Wind River Peak. So I scouted that, what I thought was going to be that entire section with a friend, but he actually got so exhausted fast packing it that we ended up bailing. So there was probably a 30 mile section I had not done before. And that was trouble because I was hitting that in the dark and I missed a couple of pivotal turns and had to backtrack. And so, yes, most of it I scouted except for a 30 mile section, which I really wish I had scouted. And if I go back and attempt to do the high route again, I might just, even though I've done it before, I might just go and fast pack the whole thing again, just have it really, really dialed. But yeah, I, for, for prep, I like to be pretty familiar with the route most of the time. I mean, I have done FKTs where I've on-sided the whole thing and that's been fine. But if you have a chance to scout a route ahead of time, it makes a really big difference. Doesn't. Yeah. So you, so Wind River High Route again is just one of the FKTs you've set, but the other one that I was interested in talking about too was the Whirl, which is the Wasatch Ultimate Ridge Link Up. Mm-hmm. So now I, I believe you did this one last summer, if I want to, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I've done it four times, starting in 2018, 2019, 2020, and then skipped a year and then last year i did it again do you really like the world you just keep whirling around the world i do well i had to go and do do it a fourth time because the way i've always wanted to do it is unsupported and nobody had really done it unsupported before there's a little bit of a gray area where someone may have claimed to have done it unsupported except that they i believe someone actually brought them food on the route according to them so that's a bit of a gray area and i don't really need to go into that but Besides that, nobody had really done it in a single push unsupported because there's almost no water on the route. I mean, pretty much there's no water on the route, but I went early enough to collect snow. Anyway, the first time I wanted to do it was, I wanted to do it unsupported, but I didn't get the opportunity. And so the first time I was like, all right, fine, let me just go do it. Like the traditional way I'll have caches. I'll leave myself caches and then maybe meet up with some friends. So first time I did it was just just to do it. And that was great. It was great fun. It's really, it's really difficult, but it's really fun. It's beautiful ridgeline. Second time I got the female FKT on it, but because a friend dropped off an ice axe for me, so I wouldn't have to carry my ice axe the whole way. It didn't, it didn't count as not even self-supported. Even though I dropped my own caches, it didn't count as self-supported because someone brought me an ice axe, which is totally fine and totally fair. But I was like, I'm so close to being able to do it unsupported. Third time I did it, because a friend of mine wanted to be guided on it. And so I ran it with him. And then the fourth time was because I was like, all right, enough is enough. I'm going to go try to do it unsupported. And I did. I didn't make the time I wanted. I wanted to do it in sub 24 hours, but I got really sick because I got really dehydrated. I didn't have any food and almost no water the entire second half of it. Dude. Until the last eight miles when you can hit a creek again. So that was a bit of a, a struggle fest, but I, I am so happy I finally did it unsupported. And then a few weeks later, this uh, this guy went and did a men's unsupported time. So anyway, that's why I, I did it so many times. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. And it is and beautiful. You- and I'll probably do it again at some point because it's just an incredible it route. It's incredible. It's really technical. It's definitely not a running route. It is a climbing route. And I just want to throw that out there. It is a climbing route. Yeah. Can you can you give the specs for it for the audience that might not be familiar with what it is and kind of maybe paint a picture in their minds of like kind of what it looks like and what it's like to do this route? Because we were talking about it earlier. I love I loved your like you're basically crawling. Yeah. So it's the horseshoe that goes around Little Cottonwood Canyon outside of Salt Lake City. It's linking up all of the peaks of that horseshoe. I believe there are 32 or 33 named peaks on the world and a couple of unnamed little peaks. It's 36 miles and somewhere between 18 and 20,000 feet of gain. And most of it is off-trail rock hopping with technical sections of fifth-class climbing, mostly fourth-class, but a few sections of fifth-class. So you have to be really comfortable with exposure because it's very exposed. You have to be really comfortable with technical climbing, and you have to be comfortable with the length of it because even though 36 miles doesn't sound like a long way, when you're going at a crawl, it is a very long way to go. Yeah, that underscore that. Because I, I was telling Kelly, I did like, I don't even know if I can call it a portion. I mean, it was like an eighth or a tenth of like what the world was, Lone Peak. And that took us, we were like, oh yeah, we're going to hit that peak. We're going to go over here. We're going to swing over and hit this and come down that. And no, dude, like we, we did like a quarter of like what we thought we were going to do for the day. And it took us forever. So yeah. the world is just something that I've always been fascinated with because, I mean, yeah, it's like right there, right outside of Salt Lake. I mean, and it's just yeah. so pretty. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful ridge link up. It's just, it's so clean. It's just, just it's such a beautiful ridge line. Now, and you said, so one of the hardest things about unsupported is the fact that there's no water up there. Mm-hmm. And I d- won't use the water from the Snowbird Tram. In my definition of unsupported, you can only use, my, my version is natural resources. So even though the Snowbird Tram is on the route and in the technical terms from the FKT site, if it's a free water source, a free public tap, you can use that and it counts as unsupported. But I didn't want to do it that way. I only wanted to use natural sources of water. So I went early enough in the year. I believe it was early July so that I could use snow runoffs. Yeah. My mistake was that I thought even though the temperatures at night were warm, I didn't anticipate how locked up the snow fields would get at night. So I wasn't able to get enough water because even though it was still in the 40s and 50s, the snow wasn't melting anymore. It was still pretty frozen. So I wasn't able to like, you know, just intake enough water to to stay properly hydrated, which is why I got so so sick on it. But, you know, I remember. Dude, one of the pictures, <laughs> I think it was when the sun came up. I think you put it on your story. You look pretty rough. <laughs> I was like, damn. Yeah, I, I puked a lot. Cause, and I couldn't keep food down because I didn't have any water in uh-huh. me. I was basically just like eating handfuls of snow. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, which I couldn't filter because I was just eating it at that point, And I wasn't able to melt it with my body heat because, I don't know, maybe I don't have enough body heat. I'm not sure. So, anyway, it was an adventure. And I know most people would be like, that is a very silly way to do that route when you can just, you know, have water caches on it. But I've done it that way before and I wanted to to do it in like a very pure, pure style. So there you yeah. go. <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's great. Like you you didn't want any you didn't want it to be tainted by any part of like civilization, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want any kind of unnatural assistance in that 
So that would have included the the tram at Snowbird. Yeah. yeah, that's admirable. That's so cool. So we have the Whirl. Now, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, but the Teton Center Punch Traverse. Mm-hmm. This is This is a traverse that basically you just made up. Well, I mean, you kind of, I mean, I mean, in a, in a way made up, but like, obviously you studied maps and things like that. So, okay. So what inspired that? Well, first of all, can you tell us a little about, a little bit about what it is and then what inspired it and like what goes into actually creating your own like traverse like that? Well, let's see the history of how I came up with it was I knew that the, the Teton Crest Trail, which is a very famous hiking, backpacking trail in the Tetons. It only covers half the range. And I was like, well, why isn't there a northern crest trail? So I started doing research and there is. It's just not really utilized. It's very old, old trails that are pretty much faded and kind of, you know, goes up to this dirt. Well, I actually think think it exits into Idaho, but there are old trails that go all the way up towards Yellowstone, but they're almost never used and hard to follow and it's super remote but while I was studying this I was like wow like there's actually an incredibly beautiful ridge line goes across the entire spine of the Tecon range and I started doing more and more research and I was like wow like you know I was looking at it on Google Earth I was studying what I could from topo maps and then you know what what I knew about those areas in the Tetons the entire northern half is super remote so I didn't really know much about that other than what I could see on Google Earth or on maps, but I was like, I think, I think I can link up that entire ridgeline. And then that would go into the southern part of the Crest Trail. And then rather than exiting the Crest Trail at Phillips, you stay on the ridgeline. And I realized that that was following the hydrological divide of the Tetons. And I was like, wow, that is a really beautiful line. Okay. That is cool. Yeah. So it's a natural line that follows the entire spine of the Tetons. And as I was like going through this, I was like, okay, like this section's like this, this section's like that. I think I can do all this. I started talking to another running friend of mine who loves to get wild in the Tetons. He's like a total cowboy, like runs around in like Grateful Dead t-shirts, like cotton t-shirts. And (laughs) he like yo-yos the Crest Trail for fun in the middle of the night. Like he's a wild man and doesn't tell anybody, doesn't tell anyone. Like the stuff that he's done in the mountains is is crazy. And I was like, hey, Fred, his name's Fred Most. I was like, have you ever been on this section, which is right behind the Grand before Table Mountain, which I think is the most technical part of the route? Have you ever been through there? And he goes, oh, yeah, I've been through there. And I'm like, well, of course you have. And so I was like, OK, let me bring him on and right. see if he wants to, like, help create this route with me. And then we went and, and ran it. And that's when we got stuck in that technical section in the middle of the night because the entire northern half took us much longer than we anticipated because of all the technicalities involved in the climbing and scrambling. So rather than hitting it in the light, which is what we thought, we hit it in the middle of the night. And then we went and finished the route the next day. So that was, how long did that end up taking? Can't quite remember. I think it took 40 something hours to do it. And then when we went back and did it the following year, we did a much cleaner run of it all the way through in 36 hours. And then two friends of mine who are professional mountain runners went and dropped the time, I think, to 29 hours. Um, they brought a rope with them, so they roped up for a couple of the technical sections, which is probably a good idea because it's very loose. Interesting. Um, and I know a couple of people after we created this route have backpacked it, possibly, although that sounds a bit difficult because it is technical and it would be hard to haul a backpack around on some of that rock. But 
I know that there have been a few other people who've gone through and completed it once we established the route. So that's pretty cool. And I'm actually really excited for more people to go do it because it's incredibly beautiful. It's 70 miles. I think it's over 20,000 feet of gain. A lot of a lot of soloing. There is fifth class climbing on it. So if you're not comfortable with that, definitely bring a rope. And that rock is loose and it will crumble. So you got to be really aware. And I would recommend because the rock is loose, you do it with a partner so that you have someone to spot you. And that's one of the reasons I didn't want to do the route alone is because it's so loose and, and dangerous. It's like kind of just not not worth it. But yeah, Teton Center Punch, it's it's so beautiful. And that northern part of the Tetons is incredible. And nobody goes up there. And yeah. FYI for anyone wanting to repeat it or go and do it, there are a lot of bear up there. So Yeah, okay. It is a wild place up there. But no, that's so cool. Thank you for your your story with that. That's incredible. I bet it's I bet it feels so cool to like create your own route. Like that I just I feel like that's such a cool, cool thing to do that not a lot of people can say that like, oh yeah, I created this traverse. And I, you know, I had the creativity to kind of look at this map and be like, that could link to that, that could link to here and then go up. But that's only one part of it. The second part is actually doing it. Yeah, you have and to so, do it. You have to go yeah. do it yourself. You can't just like be like, oh, yeah, this looks cool and just like put it out there. The first person to complete a route, even if someone else comes up with it, is the one who gets to name it. So, right, right. You, I mean, I could, I could have come up with it, but if someone else did, they could have claimed it as their route. So, yeah, yeah. True. You know, sure. It's so cool. So, well, you said, so you've talked a lot about, you know, especially in like with this traverse, you're like, Hey, there's some fifth class stuff on here. Uh, you got to be comfortable soloing and things like that. And one of the things that when I was doing my research on you is that you've been climbing for like 30 years <laughs> around there. Yeah. 31 years. Yeah. Crazy. So, and then you did some bouldering competitions, I think. Like in the 2000s, like maybe early 2000s or something like that. But yeah, somewhere around there. And you like place first and basically you were crushing it is what I'm <laughs> trying to say. Here. I right? used to so, train as a, I used to train for bouldering comps. I used to climb like three hours a day back when I wow. lived in Los Angeles. I was in college in Los Angeles. and Oh, wow. I loved climbing, but, you know, I, that was mostly in, in bouldering gyms. And I used to go to Joshua Tree to climb a lot and go up mm-hmm. to Yosemite and bishop but for the most part i was just like training in my local bouldering gym and yeah i got really into competitions and yeah yeah, it's really fun well so that's that's my question is like how has your experience in climbing kind of helped you with some of these traverses and the world and stuff like that like how has it helped you become like kind of a good like all-around mountain athlete well i wouldn't have started running if i hadn't climbed i mean basically i I was always a climber and when I realized I could just run up and down mountains and I'm like, okay, well, why spend all day like hiking them when I can, when I can go run them. And so it's sort of like this merging of, you know, trail running and climbing and that's called mountain running. And so yeah, that is currently what I, what I do. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people know you, most people know you probably for your, your mountain running, right? Like just like the pure, like trail running and stuff like that. And then it's like, but if you like really go to your page and stuff like that, you really see like, dang, like she's actually like an exceptional, an exception, an exceptional. I can't even say the word. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? She's a very good climber. And so, but that, and that actually came first. That's crazy. I didn't know that. 
No, but I mean, I'm not as strong of a climber as I used to be because I used to just climb yeah. and I could, I was a much stronger climber when I was focusing on climbing and now I'm mostly running. So, you know, like if, if I went and tried to like onsite a 511, I'd probably be struggling. Oh yeah, me too. I would be struggling as well <laughs> on sighting a 511. I know. Yeah, no, no, no. I get it. I get it. If, so this kind of segue, this is a good question. So if you could only do one thing for the rest of your life, you could either climb, run, snowboard. Which one? It has to be one of those three. I would pick something else if it had to only be those. Oh, interesting. Okay. What would it be? Walking around in the mountains. Just walking. Just, just doing Just being outside. Yeah. I would do that. If I had to do that forever, I, I would probably be okay. Just walking. Like you can't, you can't get up to a run though. Nope. Just wandering around, looking at things. I, I love foraging. I love looking at wildflowers. I love looking at wildlife. As long as I could get outside into the forests or mountains yeah. every day, I think I would be okay. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and so, gosh, that's so cool. What is it about, what is it about pushing yourself in the mountains that's so special to you, do you think? I think it's just trying to push, have, have the most fulfilling human experience while I'm alive. Dang, that's good. Just, yeah, because I'm curious. Like, y- you always want to know where the, the edge is. So you push towards that edge. And you just have, like, incredibly, the more you push, the more pure and raw experiences you have and the more you learn about yourself. And it's, I don't know, it's just exploration. You're, you're, a, yeah, it's like, it's just being, it's like the modern day adventurer kind of, especially <laughs> like when you're, when you're establishing your own traverses and things. I mean, that's like really being like adventurous, I think. Yeah, it's fun. I've got a couple other ones. Yeah. That I'd like to, to sort out. They, they look like oh. they might be too technical, but you know, I got some plans in the future to see if I can oh. link up some other peaks. Oh, really? Is it, are, is it kind of around in the Tetons there again? In, in Wyoming. Yeah. We'll yeah, see what. Yeah. If it's possible, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get around to it this summer, but maybe. Yeah. Yeah. What do you got planned this summer, by the way? Let's see. I might potentially run the high route again because I'm not satisfied with my time on it. There's a couple of places where I screwed up the route and my dirt nap that didn't really work out. I didn't end up sleeping anyway. So I'm like, well, that's like some time I can take off right there. And I had some some foot problems on it too. I was wearing a pair of shoes that was oversized on purpose to accommodate for foot swelling, but I actually wore a pair of shoes that was way too big for me and it caused a lot of really painful giant blisters. So the last 17 miles out, I was biting down on a stick. No way. Yeah. I was in so much pain. I had to, yeah, it was, it was really bad because I made the mistake of, well, a couple of them burst while, while I was walking. Or like, you know, like trotting out, limping out. And then I just decided to drain the rest of them. And that was a really bad idea. And I was, I had to bite down on a stick and just, I was limping out for a while. And then I finally got into a run again. And it was just, it it was really painful. So I I would like to go back and just do it better. But like everywhere in the West, we had a massive snow year. So I don't know what the conditions are right now. And some of my other goals are also going to be affected by how much snow there is. So Really, I'm not entirely sure until I get up into the mountains and can kind of see for myself what is going to be appropriate for this year because there's just, there's so much snow right now. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot. Okay, biting down on a stick. I feel like that's like, 
I didn't even know that that worked actually. That's like a really old school, like that, right? Like you always see like people are like in old movies or something, like somebody's getting surgery or something. Yeah. Like, did, did it actually work? Well, I just, I, I don't know. I was just like gritting my teeth so hard. I was like, I thought I was going to yeah. break my teeth. So I was like, well, I'm just going to bite down oh. on the stick instead. Oh, Kelly, you are gritty. I love it. <laughs> dang, 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 dang. Before I wanted to get into your, so Kelly's also a very talented artist. I wanted to kind of ask this this question because I know you split board. I also split board. And my question would be, what do you what do you think about when you go with skiers? Oh, I usually How, just go with skiers. Do you really? So Mo my but thing, that's not on purpose. It's just that most people in Jackson are skiers. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Do you ever feel like like you're probably not? I always feel like when I go with skiers, I'm like the slow person with the split board freaking mm. with all the heavy stuff. And I'm trying to put it together and I'm, you know, this and that. And I'm like, God, I got to go with more split board. Yeah, I think the where it becomes tricky is not transitioning. I mean, I can transition my board back and forth really quickly. It's it's when you're side hilling out that it becomes an issue where you don't have enough speed to traverse and you do these small uphills where the skiers can sidestep up and down yeah. that's where i have trouble because i can't do that on a split board i'm not good at split skiing i know some people can do that with their right. split boards i i have not learned how to do that yet and even if i did it's so i'm using soft boots not hard boots so yeah. it's squishy and you can't really edge the same way so i can't do the step up and step down thing so that's where i lose time interesting it's when you have to do those weird little tiny transitions like up and up and down that the skiers can just you know stay in one mode for and i'm like oh my god like i, I have to know. take my board off and then i have to like hike up and then put it back on or yeah, i know or i just skin i'll just like skin out the whole way because that's that at least that way i can stay in one mode and just go like skin up right. and then sort of slide down and oh the split board yeah the achilles hill of the split borders yeah every I time so i go sometimes oh me too I, yeah, there's, there's, uh, yeah, I get, I get pretty frustrated when it's like the, the long transitions out the, out of the canyon. I'm like, oh my God, like, I'm glad I'm not the only one with that because every time I go with skiers, I'm like, this is the stupidest thing ever. I'm like, why? I need to just learn how to ski. But then I'm like, no, it's so fun to snowboard and I've been doing it for so long. But gosh, you know, but you know what? <laughs> Splitboarding's awesome. I absolutely, it's like one of my favorite things to do now. It's really fun. But like, isn't it a great way to stay in shape, like for running, mm -hmm. like all year round? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's a great way to just be out in the mountains when you can't get there any other way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Just exploring some cool things. And yeah. Well, cool. So, so yeah. So, Kelly, so like I was saying, Kelly is also an artist. And so I was looking at some of your illustrations and was pretty blown away by some of these things. First of all, I'm blown away by anybody that can really draw because I can't barely do a stick figure make it look cool i mean i don't understand i just can't comprehend how you put that on a page that's crazy to me but <laughs> you just came out with maybe you didn't just come out with it but you did come out with a children's book called wildlife in the tetons so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah sure i've illustrated maybe 10 children's books before i did my own book Silas in the Last Forest a couple of years ago yeah. and self-published that. And that's a, a narrative story kind of in a, a dark future where humans don't go outside anymore. And this little boy wants to 
explore the last forest, which he finds a photo of. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go find that. And finds his like, life is much more complete being out in nature. And then last year, I self-published a wildlife book for children called Wildlife in the Tetons. And it's focused on mammals in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And it's, yeah, it's just a, a, a good way to introduce children to wildlife in, in kind of a fun way. And so they can go out and, you know, try to check off boxes and see what animals they see in the forest. And I'm currently working on a bird edition to follow that up with. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yes. <laughs> Dope. Cool. Now, is it more challenging to, okay, I'm sure they're very different, but is it more challenging to illustrate and write a book or do an FKT? A book? Longer. Because the process, like going back and forth, like putting the book, the book together is just sort of right. like, it's just frustrating. It doesn't really feel like there's a reward. You're just like, oh my God, you know, but I don't know. Both processes are, are fun. Kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. They have their own, their own things. I'm sure. Yeah. Now in, so you're doing a, a bird book as well. And I'm guessing mm -hmm. that's going to be kind of around like in, in the Tetons too. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. How has like the environment around where you live in Jackson, how has that shaped your like artistic style and like your subject matter? Do you feel like? Oh, I mean, everything I draw is, has something to do with nature for the most part in one way or another. It's very, very nature-based. Yeah. I mean, I, I draw lots of trees, skulls, mountains, but mostly in a very surreal way. I mean, I, I, I do some landscapes and some more basic compositions of natural elements, but my favorite things to draw are when you kind of mix it up with the surreal and yeah. kind of, Cause I, yeah, I like to, I like to explore that realm. Yeah, because I've seen I've seen some of those. They're like super unique, like because it's like the I think it was one was the Grand and Middle Teton, and but it was like not like you know it wasn't just like that you just drew a mountain. It was more of like like all these leading lines and things like that. And so, what what kind of inspires that for you? Like, how do you even think? Like, how do you how does that come up? I I've just been so fascinated with art. <laughs> I don't know. I well, my whole family everyone's an artist in some way in my family. So my sister and I grew up drawing and painting. My mom is an artist. So I don't know. We, my sister and I grew up with art all around us and a lot of inspiration. And my parents are very supportive of the arts and we went to galleries a lot and had a lot of art books. So there was inspiration everywhere, but I think specifically for what I, what I'm doing now, it's just, you know, a mix of the, the experiences I have in the mountains with kind of a dreamlike realm. Yeah, I guess. And, you know, there there are a few that are just mountains, but like I said, my favorite are the more surreal ones. Yeah, they're super unique. Super cool. I think I'll definitely link that below, too, so people can check those things out. And OK, so I had some audience questions, too, Okay. By the way, before we wrap up. But so. So Becca Tarbox, she lives in Oregon. I know I've communicated with her a couple of times. She goes. Kelly is rad, exclamation point. Is she still on the fence about Barkley? And I'm guessing the Barkley marathons. I didn't know. I didn't know mm -hmm. about this. I didn't know that you were considering this. What's over there? I, well, I've just like, inquired about it a little bit. I just like the, the wild nature of it, how it's kind of, yeah. kind of survivalist style. And that's what yeah. I like to do. So I, I'm not really interested in races anymore i used to race yeah. but i'm a lot more interested in just like the pure you know 
yourself in nature without any aid is is definitely like the niche I like to explore. And the the Barkley is as close as you can get to that, where even though you do come back in loops to the trailhead, you go out every single time. You're, you're just pretty much on your own, and it's just like survival style. And I'm and it has a lot of vert, and you know I like that. But I don't I don't know. It takes a lot of work. And you have to be very lucky to even get into those in the first place. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just, that's just something I'm like, hmm, maybe, maybe. You have it. I mean, I feel like you definitely have the resume to get in there. I know, isn't it like you have to kind of know somebody maybe or or something like that? Uh, I, yeah, there's a lot of crazy things you have to do to, to, get, to get into that. And then I think there's a lottery as well. So there's absolutely like no guarantee that you know, I could even get into it. So I don't know. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I just thought it'd be fun to try to like make to make those times. It's like a fun challenge. But yeah, I don't know. Just seems kind of wild. It does. It does seem wild. <laughs> wild suffer fest. <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, as you were talking about that, I was like, you know what you'd be really good on would freaking Survivor. <laughs> oh no, I've I've been asked to be on those shows before, and I have no oh, really? interest. I have no interest in doing. <laughs> Any of those TV shows or like Naked and Afraid. I I have absolutely no interest in that. I just the TV aspect of it. Like, I'm just like, no, I I don't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they would likely make you over dramatize things and, you know, do all. Yeah, I'm not I'm not good at that. I've been on I've been on the Weather Channel before on stories of survival. And even that they kept trying to push me to like exaggerate. And I was like, they're like, yeah, like you were probably shaking and like scared out of your mind. And I was like. Not really. No, actually, it was fine. But, you know, that doesn't make good TV. So I was like, no, I can't do the I can't do the bullshit aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. We had a we had a buddy in college that was on. Do you remember like MTV? There was like some dating show on MTV. It wasn't I don't know what it was called, but he was selected to be on that when I used to live in Minnesota. And I remember him saying like how they like really kind of planted different things to really drive the story and things like that. Yeah. And it's like, I get it because it's on TV, but like at the same time, yeah, you're really compromising your integrity, which for you, yeah. it's, it, you know, especially just kind of knowing you and talking to you right now, which is something that's really big for you. So it's like, probably not the best fit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I used to study film, so I, I understand telling a story. I get it. But it's very hard to do reality TV because you are like you need to have drama in order to get people to watch. So and sometimes in reality, there isn't any drama and that doesn't make good TV. So, yeah, that that aspect. I, yeah, I was make stay away from that personally. So so all the survivor producers that are listening to my podcast she's not going on so we had another question which was what is your what is your training like as in what are i'm sure that you're you know going to the gym probably doing some different types of exercises maybe like yoga stuff like that like what does that look like on a weekly basis and how do you balance that with you know putting the vert on your legs and you know really especially like on the downhills and stuff like that. And then I'll try to like lift the next day or like lift a couple of days before that. And it's like, dude, like I'm like dying. So how do you, how do you balance that stuff? Like what is, yeah. What does your training regimen look like? Well, I have a coach. My friend Casey Clark is my coach. She's been my coach for a few years. I do run through the winter. I don't run a ton of mileage in the winter because it's freezing in Jackson and we don't 
have any trails to run really in the winter. There's like a few bike trails that you can run on, but for the most part, you're just running on road. But I do maintain my running fitness throughout the winter. And then as it gets warmer out, I ramp up mileage every week and I work in speed workouts. And every single day, almost every single day, I do roughly 40 minutes of stretching, yoga, PT, and weights. Interesting. And focus on different areas. And yeah, and as the trails start to melt out with the season, I get more and more burnt worked in. Whereas in the winter, you know, the only bird I can get is either boot packing or skinning or I do lunges and squats. But as the trails start to melt out and the season warms up, I get more and more vert and work that up. And so it's a, it's a really nice flow with the seasons. And then I, you know, have my peak mileage and vert, obviously, throughout the summer months when it's mountain running season. And then in the fall, I kind of like start to start to taper out. And usually I, I go on climbing trips and and take a little break and let my legs rest and, and do some more climbing. Yeah, I mean, and it's, I, I love that because the seasons almost kind of dictate like you periodizing your training in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just because Jackson's so extreme, it's it's hard to be able to to really trail run throughout the year unless I, unless I travel somewhere else because it's just, I mean, we have very extreme winters here. Right. But it's like, for me, I would probably get burnt out. If I was running all year, the same I was running like in the summer, I'd be like, I myself, I would be super burnt. Yeah. Just I like, mean, it gets boring in the winter. It does. But like I said, I don't do as much mileage in the winter. I mean, it's, it's but you split board. I do split board. Yeah. Yeah. And split board and get your vert that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's freaking awesome. No, I love it. Well, Kelly, this has been a great time. Thank you so much for coming and coming on the video and scheduling a time. I know you're super busy. So I just, I really appreciate it. You're an awesome person. It was great hearing some of your stories. We'd love to probably have you on at some other point if you're down. And I'm sure my audience is going to love this, get a bunch of good (laughs) nuggets out of it. And yeah, you're just super inspiring. Like keep crushing it, man. You're just awesome. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Chad. Thank you so much for having me on. It was really fun to talk with you. Yeah. I I can't, I can't wait to, to, to see the finished product and I hope that you have a fantastic adventure summer and and same to everyone else out there listening. Um, Happy trails.